1: Challenge
2: podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce.
3: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
5: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry, And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And uh, we recently talked about the Compton's Cafeteria riots. Uh, and this is kind of a, a little bit of a dovetail on that, but we're time traveling backwards. Uh, we've... We talked about in that episode how, you know, a lot of people point the Stonewall riots as the beginning of the LGBT rights movement in the US. But of course, there were things going on before that, uh, as that episode on the cafeteria riot pointed out, and even before that, and there were certainly gay people here long before that. Uh, and there were, in fact, LGBT rights organizations trying to pop up probably much earlier than you suspect. And today we're going to talk about the man who started ever so briefly the first such organization in the U.S., uh, at least the first that we know of. And that took place more than four decades before Stonewall. So just a heads up on this one, particularly if you're listening with younger listeners. Uh, we are going to talk a little bit about some, uh, legal issues that came up involving specific sex acts. So just keep that in mind as you listen to this one. Uh, maybe preview it if you think your, your younger listeners might not be ready for that. But right out of the gate, I feel like we have to mention that today's subject, who is Henry Gerber, uh, can be a little bit of a difficult character in LGBT history. Uh, While he definitely wanted to push back against anti-gay legislation, he was not so open to bisexuals. He was not particularly accepting of lesbians or basically any of the people we would put uh, under the LGBT umbrella today that were not gay men. Um, He was an introvert. He was a very serious man. Some people describe him as curmudgeonly or cantankerous. Uh, not really a charmer. And he would often look down his nose, even at other gay men, uh, saying that they were too frivolous and that they were not forward-thinking enough about the place of the gay man in society. But at the same time, he really spearheaded this important, though often overlooked, effort to improve the rights of gay citizens and secure some sort of safety for them. So... We're talking about Henry Gerber today. Keep in mind, he's a little bit tricky in some ways.
0: He was born Joseph Henry Dittmar on June 29th of 1892. He and his family left their home in Bavaria to set out for the United States, and they arrived at Ellis Island in 1913. At that point, Henry was 21.
5: And once they had been processed by immigration officials, the family moved to Chicago, where they were hoping to join the significant German population there. Henry got a job pretty quickly working at Montgomery Ward in the mail order department.
0: As is probably obvious at this point, Gerber was gay. And a lot of the articles about him indicate that being homosexual got him institutionalized briefly. Although the accounts aren't entirely clear about exactly when this happened.
5: Yeah, he's one that um, it, we mentioned this a lot in our our ver- in some of our episodes that there are some portions of history, and usually it's the further back you go, that it becomes the harder to actually find substantiated information. And he's very uh, tricky in this regard. Uh, outside of military records, a lot of what we have is kind of word of mouth and his retelling and some other retellings that have happened along the way. So some of the details get a little mushy-mashy. Um, but what we do know is that Henry enlisted in the U.S. Army on January 26th of 1914. And it's believed that just after this is when he changed his name from uh, Joseph Henry Dittmar to Henry Gerber. Although this is another part where there's some haziness uh, around the historical record. And when he stopped using his birth name and switched to Gerber, Dittmar actually still appears on a 1917 draft card. Although at that point, Henry claimed exemption on that card as a conscientious objector. And it's possible that he purposely... Uh, shifted the name back to his original Bavarian name in an effort to create some paperwork confusion over his status. That's purely speculation. I don't know, based on what I've seen, and I haven't seen the actual card, if that was a pre-printed card or if it's something he wrote in. Um, but eventually, we do know that his military records cross-referenced both names, both uh, Dittmar and Gerber.
0: During the early part of World War One, he was labeled as an enemy alien, and he was taken to an internment camp. Really sensationalist stories in the press and in gossip circles about German spies in the United States caused a lot of German immigrants to be looked upon with suspicion, and he was no exception.
5: After the war was over, uh, Gerber re-enlisted at the end of 1919, and he worked for the military as a printer and a proofreader, and he was shipped to Koblenz, Germany, as part of the U.S. Army of Occupation in 1920. And there he worked on the Amarok News, which is a daily paper that was published to keep American soldiers that were stationed abroad, particularly in Germany, informed and entertained. And it published everything from poems and short stories to the latest sports scores.
0: While he was in Germany serving as a United States soldier, Gerber was exposed to that country's homosexual emancipation movement and as also to the Scientific Humanitarian Committee that was a critical part of that movement.
5: Uh, and I'll give a little background on the German homosexual emancipation movement. Uh, and we're also going to talk a little bit about Magnus Hirschfeld, who was also mentioned in the um, Compton's Cafeteria episode. Uh, so the criminal code in Germany was amended in 1871 with the inclusion of what is called Paragraph 175. And that piece of legislation made it illegal for men to engage in sexual acts with one another.
0: 26 years after Paragraph 175 was adopted into law, the scientific humanitarian community was founded in Berlin by Magnus Hirschfeld. One of the huge achievements of Hirschfeld's life was the deconstruction of homosexuality from a biological perspective, sort of moving it away from being defined as a pathology.
5: And with a scientific approach to the issue of homosexuality, the Scientific Humanitarian Committee was making some progress towards LGBT rights. And they were making that progress right up until Hitler's rise and the Nazi Party's persecution of any perceived sexual deviance.
0: Yeah, the Nazi Party actually burned down uh, Magnus Hirschfeld's uh, Institute for, for Research into Sexuality. Like, that's that's sort of been alluded to in a couple of episodes that we have talked about that have been on this subject. And we've never gone into a lot of detail. But yeah, the the Nazi Party destroyed his facility and all the research that was in it.
5: And uh, the, we're just giving you kind of the brief and quick on that to kind of contextualize what happens next when Gerber returns to the U.S. Uh, we're going to talk about that influence after his time in Germany and his exposure to the homosexual emancipation movement. Uh, but first, we are going to have a quick word from a sponsor.
4: Sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world.
6: Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman.
4: In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest.
3: Where are you taking me?
4: Are you death?
5: By the time Gerber returned to the U.S., he was well acquainted with the homosexual emancipation movement. Uh, he had spent his time in Germany reading magazines and other literature about the movement and also getting to know its leaders. He would kind of travel around Germany and go to lectures and, and really immerse himself in this whole ideology to learn about it. And he thought if Germany could have this growing and, and thriving for the time homosexual culture that was willing to speak out for rights, why couldn't we have that in the U.S.? So one of the things about the United States was that there was just a lack of uniformity
0: in legislation across the country regarding sex. It had created a really tangled mess and that was facing anyone who wanted to work toward the cause of rights. Being labeled as immoral in his home country for being homosexual just really seemed to be an incredible injustice to Gerber.
5: Yeah, and I have to wonder about sort of the duality of it in terms of his home country. I, I put that word in the notes and he considered the U.S. his home country, even though he had come from Bavaria. And so it's kind of interesting that he then went back to Germany and saw them kind of working towards this progressive idea of rights. And then he went to his chosen home where he just did not have that same kind of um social movement going on. So it's kind of fascinating from that perspective. Uh, and when he returned to Chicago in 1923, after his three years in Germany, he started working as an employee at the U.S. Postal Service. And he saw that Chicago had this growing gay subculture, uh, which was secret in most areas of the city, but fairly open in the bohemian neighborhood of Tower Town, which is uh, in the near north side area. And as he saw the gay and lesbian community growing, he wanted to create a way to protect these people's rights.
0: Inspired by what he had seen in Germany, he launched his own plan to create an organization that would mimic the the ones that were involved in Germany's emancipation movement. He knew that he could not do it alone, but it was really difficult to find other people who were willing to take the risks that were inherent in participating in this kind of mission. He tried to network with other activists, including birth control advocate Margaret Sanger, but he never managed to forge any alliances, his efforts to reach out to the gay men he knew of in business uh, in Chicago were met pretty coldly at best. Prominent business people were just not willing to risk their jobs and families to fight for what they thought was definitely a losing cause.
5: Yeah, as if it's not completely clear, at this point, pretty much all these people were closeted. Um, outside of Tower Town, like, nobody knew that any of these people were gay. Uh, And after a year of searching for allies, Gerber and six other men that he had managed to round up founded Chicago's Society for Human Rights in 1924, applying for a charter to incorporate the group on December 10th of that year. And it was the first gay rights organization in the United States.
0: The Society of Human Rights published a newsletter called Friendship and Freedom, which circulated to all of its members. It was a pretty small group. And not many people wanted literature that might out them to show up in their mailboxes. Postal inspectors cooperated with law enforcement and would uh, report suspicious materials. At this point, pretty much all of this would have been considered obscene.
5: Yes, all pretty much illegal. Uh, Nonetheless, Gerber continued his work. And the mission of the society was to educate the heterosexual community about homosexuality and to reform the laws that made homosexuality criminal. But they had to be very, very careful about this.
0: The charter for the group relayed this purpose this way, quote, to promote and protect the interests of people who, by reasons of mental and physical abnormalities, are abused and hindered in the legal pursuit of happiness, which is guaranteed them by the Declaration of Independence and to combat the public prejudices against them by dissemination of factors according to modern science among intellectuals of mature age. The society stands only for law and order. It is in harmony with any and all general laws insofar as they protect the rights of others, and does in no manner recommend any acts in violation of present laws, nor advocate in any manner inimical to public welfare."
5: Uh, you probably noticed that there is no mention there of homosexuality or gay rights. Uh, remember, this was still a time when it was absolutely illegal to be gay, thanks to sodomy laws. Uh, in Illinois, there were precedent cases that established oral sex as sodomy under the letter of the law, including one which judicially categorized fellatio as a crime against nature. Uh, this was not a time that it would have been safe for an organization intended to decriminalize homosexuality to be out and proud about it. They had to be very, very careful and kind of work in incremental, very slow steps.
0: Unfortunately, their work did not last very long at all. Just eight months after it was founded, and with only two issues of Friendship and Freedom having been published, everything came to a crashing halt. In July 1925, the wife of one of the co-founders reported her husband to a social worker after the couple's daughter said she had seen her father and other men performing seances and other strange behavior. The social worker she spoke with contacted police. And soon thereafter, the Society for Human Rights, which was headquartered in Gerber's home, was raided.
5: Gerber was arrested for deviant behavior. Uh, His typewriter, his diaries and other papers were seized. And at this point in time, Illinois sodomy law stipulated a minimum one year prison term for anyone found guilty uh, with a maximum sentence of 10 years. So this was quite a serious situation.
0: Gerber always insisted that the story of his colleague's behavior as reported by his wife and relayed in the papers was fabricated. But because the accused husband, Al Meininger, confessed to being bisexual during police screening, no one cared that the facts of the news weren't entirely accurate.
5: Yeah, and this also came as a surprise to Gerber. He had not even known, uh, according to what I read, that the members of his group, that any of them were married. So when this turned up and there was a wife that had reported one of them, remember, he wasn't really that keen on bisexuals. So this was a, a really kind of weird and awkward situation in addition to being dangerous and kind of a powder keg. Uh, Gerber was held by the police for several days. He was allowed a phone call the morning after his arrest, uh, which he used to call, work, and explain his absence. And his supervisor kind of tried to help him out. He wrote up the situation as absent on leave in an effort to cover for Gerber. Henry endured three
0: trials with his colleagues. The only evidence against him that was supposed to prove that he was homosexual was a powder puff that was allegedly found in his room.
5: Yeah, that's widely believed to have been planted. Uh, remember, he was not, by any accounts I have read, a crossdresser. He wasn't. He didn't dabble in uh, gen, any sort of alternate gender expression. So this powder puff, it's very jarring in the record. It seems very weird and out of place. However, the charges against him were eventually dropped. And that happened when a judge realized, this was during the third trial, that Gerber had been arrested without a warrant. Uh But unfortunately, he had spent his entire savings up to this point, particularly on this third trial, hiring an attorney so that he could try to sort of save himself from this mess. The
0: raid and the trials had been reported by the news, with the Chicago Examiner running a story about it under the headline, Strange Sex Cult Exposed. So even though he had been released and the charges were dropped, he was still fired from his postal job in the wake of the of the incident for, quote, conduct unbecoming a postal worker.
5: Additionally, all records of the Society for Human Rights and their Friendship and Freedom newsletter that had been seized in the raid were destroyed, and for decades... This important aspect of LGBT history was basically erased.
0: There are no surviving copies of the Friendship and Freedom newsletter. A review of it was reprinted in the book Paris Gay 1925, which came out in 1981. The review describes the newsletter as moral and says that it included a poem by Walt Whitman and an an essay about Oscar Wilde's practice of wearing a green carnation in his lapel. It's long been rumored, but not ever confirmed, that Wilde and his social circle would wear green carnations as a secret symbol of homosexuality.
5: Yeah, so that's how that essay would have appeared in the newsletter. Um, And in just a moment, we're going to talk about Henry's life after the raid and subsequent trials and how that put an end to the Society for Human Rights. But first, we're going to take a brief word from a sponsor.
0: And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out season two of Mind the Business Small Business Success Stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks.
6: My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con The Story of BitCon. Over this nine part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trepani. I always wanted to be a criminal.
0: After all of these things that we've talked about, Henry Gerber was in need of a fresh start, and he chose to move to New York City in 1927. He re-enlisted with the U.S. Army, and then he would serve for 17 years. He's also said to have been frustrated at this point with the lack of activism within what he called the Dorian crowd. He was also really exasperated at his perception that other gay men were too willing to accept the commonly held belief that homosexuality was a mental illness, and people were seemingly willing to accept a life of clandestine meetings and a state of fearfulness.
5: Yeah, so he basically kind of kept on the down low after this, but he did continue to write. Uh, So throughout the 30s, Gerber wrote articles for gay magazines. He used a pen name. uh, And he also managed a correspondence club, which was called Contacts, which would eventually become a communications network for gay men in the U.S. And he also wrote an essay called In Defense of Homosexuality, which was published in The Modern Thinker, and he wrote that under the pseudonym Parasex. In
0: 1934, he even wrote an anti-Hitler paper, openly criticizing Hitler's treatment of homosexuals.
5: Yeah, which was kind of bold and a little bit dangerous, even written under a pen name. Um, Then, uh, a few years down the road, there was a man named Manuel Boy Frank, and he was a gay activist in California, And he reached out to Henry Gerber in the 1940s. He was hoping to get some assistance in creating a new movement to fight the oppression of homosexuals. And while Gerber was glad to help out through his writing, he did not want to attach his real name to the effort and take a real pivotal role. He just did not want to risk losing everything again.
0: Throughout his military career, he dealt with harassment. He was blackmailed and beaten. His quarters at Governor's Island were searched by Army investigators in February 1942. They found no illegal materials or evidence of illegal behavior, but just the same he was held in the guardhouse for several weeks after the search. He was honorably discharged in 1945. In
5: 1950, a new gay rights organization formed called the Mattachine Society. We referenced that in the uh, earlier episode about the Compton's Cafeteria Riot. Uh, And in 1952, this group began publishing the first gay and lesbian national newsletter, which was called One. And uh, when Gerber found out about One, he actually wrote to the magazine with an account of his efforts to start the Society for Human Rights and his, you know, attempts to get a previous newsletter out called Friendship and Freedom. In
0: 1958, One was part of a First Amendment case heard by the U.S. Supreme Court. This case was incredibly important because it eventually led to the ruling that publishing homosexual content did not mean a publication was inherently obscene.
5: Yeah, prior to that, if you even said or, you know, suggested that two men might care for one another romantically, it was pretty much obscenity. Whereas this drew that boundary of like, no, that's not automatically obscene, you guys. Uh, Years later, in 1963, one, uh, the magazine, actually ran a full story about Gerber's efforts uh, and the work that he was doing in the 1920s. And it kind of reintroduced his part in the LGBT rights movement into record.
0: In his retirement years, Henry Gerber moved to the U.S. soldiers and airmen's home in Washington, D.C. He died there on December 31st, 1972, from
5: pneumonia. He was 80 years old. In 1992, uh, posthumously, of course, Henry was inducted into the Chicago Gay and Lesbian Hall of Fame.
0: And in February of 2015, the House at 1710 North Crilly Court in Chicago, which is where Gerber lived when he founded the Society for Human Rights, was nominated as a National Historic Landmark. The National Historic Landmarks Committee unanimously approved the nomination. The next step in the process was for it to go to the National Park Service Advisory Board in May 2015. We have not yet been able to find any information about how that went, since they, we are recording this literally immediately after the conclusion of May 2015. It's like yeah, they June, have
5: not published their notes yet.
0: Today, we're, it's June 2nd, I think, that we're recording. So if it's approved by the advisory board, the nomination would then move to the secretary of the interior for final approval.
5: So, yeah, his home may uh become a national historic landmark it It looks like it's on track for that to happen, but you never know what will happen in the process. So that's something to look forward to. We may have an update soon, which would be exciting, so, yeah, that's the story of Henry Gerber. He' is uh tricky. he's one of those people that he comes up. For a long time he was written about in sort of like here's the the LGBT rights activist you have never heard of. But even so as we mentioned in the episode there are some blank spots in there that are not always entirely clear and and because he's maybe not the most sort of charming character I think he gets overlooked anyway. Yeah. Uh, well,
0: and some of his uh prejudices like continue to exist today. Like there is still a lot of anti bisexual sentiment, um, and like a yes, general, a general trend of kind of assuming anyone who has a relationship with a person of the same sex is gay or lesbian, and that bisexuality is not a thing. Like there's a lot of those ideas continue to crop up today, you know, years and years later after his death. So it's that's not a that didn't go away,
5: <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, you know, within any community, there is always fracturing. And he was, you know, kind of one of the first people that that exemplifies some of that going on. And it's not it's easy to go, oh, well, that's how it was in the 20s, which, again, I always just feel like we have to pause and go. This was something he was working on in the 1920s, so much earlier than we really think about this movement. Um, But a lot of those those issues still echo today. So it's kind of an interesting Touchstone, and and we can kind of see the mirror of that continuing. But you also have listener mail. I do. It's on a completely different topic. Uh, this is from our listener Adam, and he says, "Holly and Tracy, much like the rest of your listeners, I have started listening to your podcast to and from work each day. I have downloaded onto my phone a whole bunch of podcasts to listen to, for which I am very entertained and enlightened. My wife calls you guys my girlfriends, jokingly, of course. Oh, Adam, you wouldn't want that." Um, <laughs> Anyway, he goes on. Almost two years ago, I bought a 1916 Ford Model T and have since restored the car. Enclosed is a photo of the car. Holy smokes, it is gorgeous. That is my commentary. Uh, since restoring the car, my wife and I have enjoyed the car immensely and we try to go to as many Model T tours as we can fit into our busy lives. While on the tours, they usually have a banquet and encourage you to wear period attire. We have not a clue what men and women wore in that period in time. All I know is that short sleeves were not in fashion yet. I just listened to a podcast of Holly and Sarah on underwear and learned that Holly is very much into fashion. So this question is geared more towards Holly. What did the average person wear in 1916? We have seen photos of men in suits and women in extravagant gowns, but for the most part, the... Uh, person who bought a Model T was not a very well-off person. I personally believe they were just average working individuals. Where can we see some of these fashion photos? With your experience, Holly, are there places you can find these clothes and or clothing patterns that can be purchased, as my mother-in-law is very good with a sewing machine. Okay, Adam, here's my first piece of advice. Google, do an image search on Google for 1916. Don't specify 1916 clothing. Because that often does turn up your fashion stuff. If you just Google 1916, the images that will come up, you'll get a lot more general, real life working individuals. I will say overall, um, the clo- some of the clothing is going to look formal that isn't. That's sort of casual clothing, just because I think we're so used to a level of of informality that period clothes, even the the more middle and even lower class just looks fancier to us. But, uh, that's my first piece of advice. And I would kind of go through the images that you like the most and find the things you like and notice sort of what's going on with the suits for men and, and what you do and do not like. And, uh, ditto for your wife kind of to figure out what she does and doesn't like. And then I will give you, um, three places that you can go for patterns that I really like. There are more than these. These are just the ones that I think might hit the time period you're looking for the best. Um, the first is reconstructinghistory.com. Uh, they have a section that is labeled as Downton Abbey because it kind of spans that. A lot of the Victorian clothing pattern sites that I like kind of stop at 1900 or a little bit after that. So they're not going to quite get into there. But this one does. Uh, another good one is pastpatterns.com. And uh, the third one is Sensibility.com. The company is actually Sense and Sensibility Patterns. And they all have some pretty interesting stuff that you can look at. So what I would do is I would get your inspiration pictures from online and then kind of look through these patterns and see which ones line up most closely with that. And then work with your mother-in-law to kind of put together something that resembles it. That's how I would go about it. And I'm a little bit jealous of your awesome car. <laughs> so if you would like to write to us... And, uh, show off your pictures of your awesome car. You can do that at History Podcast at HowStoveWorks.com. You can find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash MissedInHistory, on Twitter at MissedInHistory, at MissedInHistory.tumblr.com, and on Pinterest.com slash MissedInHistory. You can visit our spreadshirt store at MissedInHistory.spreadshirt.com if you would like some stuff you missed in history class shirts or tote bags or phone cases or other goodies. Uh, and if you would like to visit our parent site, you can do so. That is HowStuffWorks.com or you can go to mistinhistory.com and check out our archive of previous episodes as well as show notes for any of the episodes since Tracy and I have been on the podcast and the occasional other additional goodie. And we hope you do. Visit us at mistinhistory.com and at HowStuffWorks.com.
3: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000.
1: And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast.
2: Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations.
4: Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.